It seemed like a mouthful. It is, I get it, but take it home, reflect on it, meditate on it. You can look it up, and there's a lot of verses that go with this. And so, uh, and of course, if you have questions, come and talk to us. I know, Eric, I know we're covering that a lot of this in catechism class, and so um, there's a lot of information out there regarding that. So uh, don't let it don't let it be a hindrance as far as your growth in the things of the Lord. So um, that's good stuff, though. If you would, please turn to Zechariah. Zechariah. We're not. We're gonna. We're gonna take a detour away from Mark this week and next week, uh, for the sake of Palm Sunday, and then next week, of course, being Easter. And so today we'll be in Zechariah chapter nine. Zechariah nine, and uh, Zechariah is, of course, one of the. If you just read it straight through, it is one of the strangest and most notoriously difficult as far as interpretation goes in some parts of Zechariah. That is uh, maybe in the entire Bible, but. That's not to say it is impenetrable. There's a lot here that is certainly to be gleaned, and, uh, and especially in light of Palm Sunday. So let's pray for illumination, for grace, and then we'll look at this. Holy Spirit, we come now in the name of Christ, and we do pray that you would give us grace. Help us to, to see Christ in these scriptures. Help us to behold Him. Give us grace, O Lord, to do justice to the scriptures. Or please strengthen our faith. Strengthen us, O God. We pray that you would... Um, give us grace to behold Christ as our King today. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, and that is the topic that we'll be covering. Um, so on Palm Sunday, here's, here's the difficulty that we have. So when we're going through the Gospel of Mark, this is kind of the difficulty that I was wrestling with this week. Um, here's the difficulty. So in about a chapter, we're covering this, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem in the Gospel of Mark. So you know, we could look at a passage in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and actually in John, anywhere in the, every gospel has, has Christ entering into Jerusalem. And we could look at that, and we could cover it verse by verse, which we're, which we're going to do in a month, and in a sense, you're kind of going to get some overlap. Um, or I thought, you, we, what we can do is we can, we'll, we'll look at the most, I would say, the most prominent sayings in those gospels regarding Palm Sunday, which is a phrase from Zechariah, or a section from Zechariah, look at that. Because it's important anyways, I love when Eric preaches, by the way, because every time he preaches, he's always preaching from the Old Testament. That's so important, that you're getting a steady diet of not just New Testament, but of Old Testament as well. And so that's why I thought Zechariah would be a perfect place to go to in, uh, in light of the fact it's Palm Sunday, and because we've been preaching verse by verse through the New Testament, take a break, go to the Old Testament, look at Zechariah, see what we see here. So this is Zechariah 9, and we're going we're gonna to read 9 and 10, and then... Um, for the Lord's Supper, we'll look at verse 11 and, and following. So this is 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, here's the beauty. That, I mean, this, this passage in general, when you read that, it's, there's a lot of elation. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of joy and hope and confidence and optimism. And, and, and there's a lot of good things in these two verses. The irony is this. When Zechariah is writing this, things are not looking too good. Okay, so Zechariah is writing this in the year 520. In the year 520, so before 520, what's going on in the life of Israel? Well, 
the northern kingdom's completely wiped out. You've already lost 10 kingdoms. There's 12 tribes, right? Or tribe, not kingdoms. There's 12 tribes. 10 of those tribes are wiped out. That happened whenever Assyria invades the northern kingdom, takes 10 of the tribes, wipes everybody out. Judah, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, they are left. Well, Babylon comes in in 586 through Nebuchadnezzar, and they sack the southern part of it. And everyone's, most people are taken off into exile. That's where you get Daniel, Jeremiah. That's where all these prophets are, are, are writing about, most of the later prophets, right? Well, by the time Zechariah is writing, some, some glimmers of hope have taken place because although they were exiled into Babylon, when Cyrus comes to the throne in 538, 538, Cyrus sends people back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple. It looks good. Things look encouraging. That's 538. But then when they start to rebuild the temple, you remember they lay the foundation of the temple, and some people are crying because they're disappointed because they saw the last temple, and they're thinking, this is nothing compared to the the other temple. What is this? And other people are crying because they're excited because they didn't see the other temple, so they're kind of encouraged. But the problem is is that the, the, the building stops. It halts. There's opposition. There's sloth. There's... A lot of corruption already taking place. People are already starting to fornicate with the pagans again. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of bleakness. You look around and you're thinking, man, this is not looking so good. We thought these things were going our way. We were, we were sent back. And you know what's sad when they were sent back from uh, Babylon, when Cyrus sends everybody back? You know what's sad is not a lot of people actually went back. It was a very small remnant of people that actually went back and started to rebuild the temple. But once they start rebuilding it, it stops. So here's Zechariah. Now here's the beauty of this. Zechariah, of all the prophets, including Isaiah, you remember sometimes, I think we mentioned it in here. So Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel because it's so hopeful. It's filled with such hope. There's all these messianic passages about Christ, about the gospel. Well, Zechariah is actually more hopeful percentage-wise. And as far as passages about the Messiah, about the gospel, there's more in Zechariah than there is in Isaiah, percentage-wise. Which is glorious, right? Because here are these people who need, they need a call to persevere and to have confidence and to have hope. And so Zechariah, that's, that's where Zechariah is writing this. Here's the thing that we're going to look at, though, in a sense. We're definitely going to look at uh, Zechariah. What we also want to look at, though, and keep in mind, is on Palm Sunday, when we celebrate Palm Sunday, when we think about Palm Sunday, there's a lot about Palm Sunday, symbolism, imagery, all kinds of typology that we don't ever really think about, that we have no idea. You know, we walk in and there's a bunch of palms on this table. We don't know who put them there. I'm glad they're there. But what are the palms about? Why do we do that? James had a good question. You know, what are you supposed to do with the palms? <laughs> are you supposed to be on your lap or something? You know, are we supposed to wave them? Around? What are we, what's, the, what's up with the palms? So we're going to look at that. Also, the crowds, the hosannas, the donkey. There's so much symbolism regarding the, the triumphal entry of Christ on Palm Sunday that we need to explore and look at. Uh, but we're going to do that through four... Four main topics here in Zechariah. Number one, Zechariah shows us in the days of Christ, the inauguration of the kingdom of God takes place. Okay, The kingdom of God takes place in the days of Christ. We're not waiting for it to take place. We're not... We're not, you know, it's, it didn't happen in the days of Zechariah. It happened in the days of Christ. We're going to show that. We're going to talk about that. Number two that the kingdom of God is more than just for Jewish people or the nation of Judaism. It's, it's, more, it's for more than just one ethnicity or one nation. We're going to see that here as well. Number three, the kingdom is victorious. It's one thing to have a kingdom. 
But how long is your kingdom going to last? Right? So the kingdom is victorious. And number four, not only has the king, the kingdom began, so it's definitive, it started, but the kingdom is also in the process of progressing. So it's this incremental idea. It's, it's, you, might, you might look at it in the already, not yet, right? So the kingdom has already taken place, but it's in the process of continuing on. And we're going to see all of this. It's all right here. And then um, here's the thing on this, okay? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, I think it gives us the perfect entry into this because the question about, question 26 about Christ's kingdom, that he is king, how, how does Christ execute the office of king? Now watch this because this is basically the theme of everything we're going to see in Zechariah. How does Christ execute the office of king? In subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and here's my favorite part, and in restraining and conquering all of his and all of our enemies. Okay? Conquering all of his and our enemies. This is glorious. Not only for Zacharias, folks. Here's the thing. When we look at our own culture and our own situation. I was thinking this, you know, with all the, you have the shooting in Nashville, you have all kinds of, and we know this, man, the, right, the, the society, culture, everything seems to be crumbling. We're looking around, and it's easy to forget who the king is. That was true in Zechariah's day. You see, Zechariah, those people are looking around, and they're saying, man, where is God, right? Where's God? We have the paganism, we have already, you, you, you're, starting to, you're starting to have an uptick in and, and crime, and in murder, and everything else in their day. And they realized, you know, we were sent into exile because of this, because of the things we're doing. We were judged for this, and now we're doing the same thing again. And in Christ's day, what's going on in the days of Christ? Same thing. They have corrupt leaders. They have corrupt priests. There's, it's bleak. It's hopeless. And so Zechariah is speaking into that context. So look at verse 9 here. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Think of the irony of that. What's there to shout about? What's there to rejoice about? Zechariah is saying this as though it's already taken place. There's reason to rejoice. There's reason to triumph, even when you can't see it. Why? Because God has promised this. We can't see these things. We don't know why. You know, so in other words, you're looking out here. People in Zechariah's day, they have this promise from Zechariah, but you can imagine they're looking around, they're like, what's all this? What's Zechariah talking about rejoicing greatly? What's there to rejoice about? What's there to rejoice about is this promise that we have from God regarding the kingdom and regarding the king. That's what there's to rejoice about. So it's a promise that you have from God. Same thing for us. We're looking around, we're like, "What's what's there to be joyful about? What's there to rejoice about? Well, it's the promises that we have in Scripture regarding where Christ is right now. So let's go through this again. Rejoice greatly. Not just rejoice, right? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. That's the reason to rejoice. Your king is coming. God is going to do a work. Do you deserve it? No, of course not. Because you guys are already in paganism and syncretism and idolatry and corruption and everything else. Of course, God, we don't deserve these things, right? God's not looking upon Israel and saying, okay, now now that Israel is, is so good. If you go back to the days of Moses, remember how often they're rebuked for being unfaithful in the wilderness time and time again. And then you read Deuteronomy and God is like, I didn't choose you because of you. I chose you because I'm a God of grace. I'm a God of compassion. I did this for me. So that when people realize I took this hard-hearted, unbelieving, stubborn generation and look where I brought them, people can realize how great God is. 
So you're looking at what's going on here, and you're realizing, okay, look what God is going to do. He's going to send this people a king. Now stop right there. If you're, if you're an Israelite, you know, what, you know what you could say? If someone comes and says, hey, God is going to give us a king. You know what you could say? So what? We've had 39 of them since David. How many of them turned out okay? There were three of the 39 that God turned around and said that these kings were like David. They were compared to David, meaning three kings of the 39 actually did what they were supposed to do. And two of the three, they're actually, they're actually criticized because you have Jehoshaphat's one of them, but he teams up with Ahab, who's the, he's the paragon of, of idolatry. And then you have um, Hezekiah. Remember, Hezekiah shows the people from Babylon around. And of course, Babylon's going to use that, and they're going to come in, and they're going to sack the whole southern kingdom. So, so Josiah's really the only king that you've ever had who was faithful. So you're looking at that. Somebody comes and says, hey, God is going to send you a king. So what? We've had, when's the last time we've had a good king? You look at David, right? Even David, for all he was worth, and the apple of God's eye, we know even David fell. So a king, okay, yeah, right, okay, but that's it. Can't we get a little more, right? But if that king happens to be God himself, if that king is Yahweh, if that king is Messiah, then it's different. See that? And that's the next part. Look what it says. Not only is there a king, but this is important too. Behold, your king is coming to you. That's important because think about the context of, of these poor Israelites in, at this time. They've, they've had kings who have come in their own interest, not the Israelites' interest, in the, own, in the king's interest. They've had corrupt kings. They've had, they've had kings that con, were concerned about their own pomp and their own welfare and their own name and, and as far as the world goes. They were after their own stuff. And of course, the corruption, and they were hoarding chariots and taking your children and everything else, taking your wives, David. And so, but this king is going to come to you. And what it means by that, what, what Zechariah is saying here, is that this king cares for your interests. He's coming for you. He's coming, unlike the prior kings, He's coming for the sake of taking care of you, delivering you, helping you. See that? And we have this all over the scriptures. Isaiah chapter, actually turn to Isaiah. Isaiah is, um, turn to Isaiah chapter 11. What's neat about the prophets is that the prophets, and we forget this, but the prophets, do you realize the prophets were all reading each other? So all the later prophets were, they were all reading Isaiah. They were all reading Jeremiah. First Daniel, they're all they're all they're all part of the same group. It's a small group, so they're all in league. They they know each other. They would have known each other. Jeremiah knew Daniel. There's no doubt about it. Daniel's Daniel's Jeremiah's receiving information from Daniel over here when Daniel's taken into captivity. Jeremiah's over here in Jerusalem, and there's there's dialogue. So it's, it's really neat. But the point here is this: okay, when you when you read Isaiah and you compare it to Zechariah, there's a ton of overlap. Why is that? Because they're reading each other, and of course we know that the Holy Spirit's inspiring them. But they're, they're, they're all, which makes sense, right? If they're all reading each other, this is all inspired scripture. It all comes from the same author. You're going to have a lot of overlap. So here's Isaiah, here's Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That's important. Because if you have nothing but roots, remember a stump? There's another place in the prophets that says the stump. Yeah, you don't have anything left but a stump. But then from that stump is going to spring a shoot. 
which is a small plant, right? You see something springing up from this stump, from the stem of Jesse. The stump is the stem of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. All right, now we're, now we're going somewhere. Now you go from a stem to a branch. Now you're having some fruit on the branch. Things are looking hopeful, right? Verse 2, then we start realizing who this is. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. That's important because all the kings in the past were corrupt. They didn't slay the wicked, they were in league with the wicked. Also, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Now catch this next part. This is important. Catch this next part. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. You have a little child, right? Are you going to let your child go and play by the hole of the cobra? Of course not. He's saying there's coming a time when that's going to happen. How is that going to happen? How is that possible? Because there's going to be reconciliation, restoration, reordering of the, of the, of the cosmos itself, of the creation. Of the, of, of, so when you, go, when you go back to Eden, you didn't have lions attacking little children. You didn't have lions attacking Adam and Eve. You wouldn't have had that. There's peace, there's harmony, even in nature, in creation. You don't have tsunamis, you don't have earthquakes, you don't have tornadoes pre-fall. Post-fall, you do. That's part of the curse. There's been a breach that's been made because of sin. Christ comes along, He restores that. Now all of a sudden, these things that were at odds and at enmity with one another, as we'll see even further down the road, now what's happening is there's restoration, there's reconciliation here taking place. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Think of that. That sounds like what? The Great Commission. Okay, but we're not there yet. Now, go back here. Now, look what's going on. So now you have Isaiah. So you have all these prophets saying something very similar, but it's because this king, this king is coming. And look what this king is like. Just like what we read in Isaiah, you see this description somewhat in Zechariah. He is just, meaning he's not corrupt. He's an ideal king. There's a messianic, there's all kinds of messianic psalms, but Psalm 72 says, He will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. Why is that important? Because they never really had a king like this. This is the kind of king that God is going to send you. And again, from the one perspective, you can say, well, that's great and everything, but from another perspective, When Christ comes in, here's the thing, when Christ comes to Jerusalem, what are the people expecting? They're expecting a king that's going to come in there and he's going to immediately set up his throne visibly, externally. You're going to be able to see it. He's going to wipe out all the pagans, all every nation that's ever come against Jerusalem, every nation that's ever come against Israel, he's going to wipe them all out. That's the idea that they have. That's correct and incorrect. That's correct but incorrect. Because guess what they don't realize? Here's the thing. When Christ is going to come and do this, He is this mighty, He is this glorious, He is this powerful. But who are the enemies? And look at the next part. You'll see this. So, 
Who are Christ's enemies? And why is that important? You see where it says he is just, and in verse 9 it says, the NASB says endowed with salvation. That's probably not the best translation, and I guarantee it. What's the ESV say? He is just. Oh, right on. Anybody? He is just and what? Having salvation. Okay, that's something they're trying to do. That's probably better than endowed with salvation. It's similar. Really, though, what you have is he is just and being delivered or being saved. Now, it's not to, mention, it's not to say that Christ needed to be saved. Christ is the Savior. He's not, he doesn't need to be saved. He's our Savior. But it's delivered in the sense of when we talk about save or salvation, it doesn't always mean your soul. Right? There's a holistic component to this that this is trying to explain. When Christ comes... He is going to be delivered. Delivered from what? Well, from the moment Christ is, is born, at the moment of conception, He comes into, the, into, the, on, on, in, into earth, and what happens? Herod is after Him. Herod's trying to kill Him. God delivers Him, sends Him to Egypt. He returns from Egypt. He grows up. What happens when He grows up? He goes and He preaches His very first sermon. The very first time He preaches, what happens? They take Him to the brow of a cliff and try to throw Him off. That's what happens. God preserves them, takes care of them, delivers them. Later on down the road in his ministry, people take up stones. They're trying to kill him with the stones. God delivers them. How many times is Herod after him when Christ is walking around? How many times are the Pharisees? Man, they were plotting to kill Christ. Remember, all the way back in like Mark chapter 3. God delivers them over and over and over and over again. But here's the beauty of this, and here's the beauty of Palm Sunday right here. And this is, especially since we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, I think it helps us to better understand this. Do you remember? Here's the thing, okay? When Christ goes to his death, now Christ, even in death, is delivered. Because he says in Psalm 22, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Save me from the lion's mouth. He has the power to lay down his life. He has the power to take up his life. But he's delivered from death, even death, right? So all throughout Christ's life, he is being delivered. But here's what you have on Palm Sunday. And this is probably, I think, I mean, think about this. Remember all the times in the life of Christ, people recognize him? They start realizing, okay, this guy's, this guy's different. Peter, Peter says, you're, you're, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. What does Jesus tell him? You're correct, but don't, go, don't tell anybody. Remember, we've seen that everywhere he goes. Demons are recognizing it, and he's stopping their mouths. He said, okay, and he sends them into the pig so they can't go and tell anybody. Everywhere he goes, what has he, what has he done up to the point where we are in, in, in the Gospels of Mark, right? He's telling people, do not tell anybody about me. Don't say it. Don't tell people. But when he comes into Jerusalem, this triumphal entry, when he comes into Jerusalem, what happens? See, what happens is people begin to sing Hosanna. People begin to, people begin to take their coats off and lay their coats in the road so that the donkey can tread on the coats. What's that about? They're crying out. They're shrieking. Everybody's excited. Every, the children are there. They're boasting. They're, they're, they're singing. Everybody's singing. What's going on here is that, okay, so the, well, first of all, stop right there. The clothes represent the person. That's what's going on there. This is humiliation before the king. The clothes represent the person. That's what's going on. When I take my, my coat off in those days, and I lay them before this person, and he walks on this person, this is me showing humility before this person. This is royal treatment. The palm leaves. I'll, I'll give you a description of the palm leaves. The palm leaves are very similar as far as the royal treatment go. 
So the palm leaves, the waving of palm branches was a common way of celebrating the victory of a great king or deliverer. Cicero, he lived around that time. Cicero refers to this as well. So it's not just the Jewish people that recognized this. Anytime you saw the, the waving of palms, it was a celebration of the victory of a great king. Now think about this. He's riding into Jerusalem. They're assuming that this they're already recognizing him that, that recognizing that the great king has been he has conquered. He has delivered already before he's done it. Before he's done anything. He's going into Jerusalem. But again, the mindset of most people is now's the time he's going to come in and he's going to wreak havoc on Rome. It's time. It's over. The time of waiting for this has finally come. Here's the other thing. For this reason, Cicero refers to the victor as the man of many palms. This is also why Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is commonly referred to as his triumphal entry, right? But think of this. Every time Christ has received this treatment when people are saying he's the son of God or he's the Messiah or this or that, he's told everybody to hush. But now what happens? He comes into Jerusalem. The powder keg has exploded. People are crying out. The king is here. The king has arrived. The king from Zechariah, the king from Isaiah, the promised Messiah. Everybody knows now. And look at this. You know who's trying to rebuke him now, right? You know who's trying to keep everybody quiet now? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. So they're all saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're saying, the Pharisees, rebuke your disciples, Christ. Tell them to stop. Don't let them do it anymore. What does Christ say? If these become silent, the stones will cry out. He's saying it's go time. It's time. There's no more hush about it. There's no more keeping everything quiet or secretive. No, now's the time to go and shout and let everyone know that the king has come. The king has arrived. Now it's time. And of course, we know a week later he's going to be dead. (laughs) So that shows you why he was trying to put the kibosh on it way back here. Once this happens, it's over. It's going to happen really fast. But here's the beauty. He is the king. He's not the king that a lot of people were expecting. He's not the king a lot of people were wanting. He's greater than that. Look at Zechariah. And you see this here in Zechariah. Because here's what's, here's what's ironic. Okay? He comes riding on a donkey. What is the donkey about? What's the donkey about? I mean, how many times, right? You see the donkey and you get on. But what's the donkey about? The donkey is about peace. Okay? You know what people are expecting the Messiah to do? They're expecting him to come in, just like John the Baptist, and start a a warfare. Okay, When he comes riding on a donkey, a donkey is a symbol of peace. A a horse is a symbol of war. Think of Revelation. You have a rider on a white horse coming to conquer, wipe out. Well, a donkey is the opposite. A donkey is is an animal of peace in those times. Okay, But look what's going on here. And Zechariah explains why he's on a donkey. He's on the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. What's he saying? There's going to be no more war between nations. Peace, reconciliation. You see that? Again, what are the people expecting? He's going to come and deliver us from the oppression of Rome. Christ is going to turn around and say, no, Rome's oppression is because you are sinful. 
the judgment of God is going to come upon this, these people here in about 40 years after this in the destruction of Jerusalem because of their sin, because they're going to reject the Messiah. But in the meantime, what Christ is doing is He's saying, okay, that's not what I came to do. I didn't come to wreak havoc on the oppressors. I came to save the oppressors. I'm going to save the centurion. Who's the first person in the Gospel of Mark who recognizes that Christ is the Son of Man, or Son of God, I mean? The centurion, the Roman, the pagan, the guy who's outside the camp. That's, there's a reason for that. It's because of this. You see, what Zechariah is saying, that he will speak peace to the nations. You see this? He will speak peace to those who are far off. If you were to go to Ephesians, I will, you don't have to. Ephesians 2 says this, though. Ephesians 2 uses the same language. Remember when Ephesians 2 is talking about Gentiles, Jews coming together, and it says this, that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having, by, by it having put to death the enmity. The cross is going to put to death the enmity. Look, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away or far off. This is the same language of Zechariah. That's what Christ came to do. So this kingdom, what's my point? When Christ comes to set up His kingdom, they're expecting a, a national kingdom, an ethnic kingdom, just for this one location, this one area. Well, according to the, all the prophets, according to Christ, according to Paul, this gospel was never meant to be just for one nation or one little particular people group. This, remember when God goes to Abraham and says that through your seed you're going to bless the entire world? All the families of the world are going to be blessed. And then in Galatians 2 and 3, it gives us the interpretation there. The seed of Abraham is Christ. How is he going to bless all the nations? Through the Great Commission, going out, blessing all the families. It's, it all goes together. Here's the thing, though. When you're looking at what Christ does, Christ, when he comes to set up his, his kingdom, it's a kingdom that overcomes death, sin, evil, the, the enemies. What's your greatest enemy in life besides yourself? And even that, what's God doing? What do we read in the, in the Shorter Catechism? He subdues even us. He's working in us. Our King is helping us to grow in sanctification. What's another enemy? Death. Of course He defeats death. We'll see that next week. See that good, on Good Friday. We'll see it today. Christ goes to the cross. He delivers us from death. He delivers us from sin by dying for our sins. He delivers us from the evil in this world. When we're suffering the evils in this world, yes, you're saying, well, we're still suffering, we're still, we're, you still see a lot of suffering. But at the same time, what do we have? We have this, this sense in which God is working through this suffering to bring about greater good, greater glory for Himself, and greater sanctification in us, and greater strengthening in the church. And of course, our enemies are being subdued, and there is judgment to come on our enemies. But here's the thing, okay? No more nation against nation. You know when the pilgrims and the Puritans came over and they came up into the northeastern part? When you read the charters regarding why they came over, they have all kinds of charters. You can go and look them up. The charters, all of them, they're going over to evangelize Native Americans. And don't let, you know, don't let whatever bad public education wants to teach about this. The reality is, is when they get over here, there is a lot of legitimate, genuine evangelism going on. And what happens, my favorite is John Elliott. John Elliott is a Puritan evangelist, Puritan missionary. He comes over, 1600s, and he goes to these different tribes. He starts evangelizing, sharing the gospel with them. He translates the Bible into their, their dialect or their language. And these people, they're Native Americans. They have nothing in common. 
you can imagine this, this British guy in the 1600s going over to these, to these people that have been in, you know, living in, in, in the Americas forever, and they start interacting somehow, you know, like, hey, however that looked, giving them a Bible. Well, by, by the time it was all said and done, there was something like 15 different tribes that had been converted, that had been Christianized, that had gotten rid of all their idols, that were now instilling Christian education, Christian reformation, Christian churches in these tribes. It's crazy. But it's not that crazy because this is the way it always was. Remember reading church history. Patrick of Ireland goes back to the Irish. The Irish that had enslaved him. The Irish that had taken him captive. He's going back to those guys because he realizes things like Zechariah. We are to speak peace to the nations through the gospel. The gospel is going to go forth, speak peace to the nations. What does it mean to speak peace to the nations? To be reconciled to God. To have peace with God. No more enmity between God and you. And when that takes place, when they come in, guess what happens? Think of this. In the, in the, in the political spheres of today, right? We look at China as Americans. We, you know, political, social, so, social stuff going on. We look at China and we say, okay, those are our enemies, right? We're not, we're not allies with China, right? But you know what happens? You meet a Christian who's in China. And then you realize, you know what? I'm closer to this guy than I am with any conservative politician in the United States of America. There's more of a bond here between he and I than there is between me and anybody else, as like-minded as they are, as American as I am and as they are, you know, as far as our culture goes and our understanding of things. I have more in common with this Christian in China who I don't even... Never even met, can understand him, eats different foods, has different, you know, their worship looks different, but I have more in common with him than I do any other American who's not, a, not in Christ. That's what this is talking about. No more nation against nation. Augustine tells the story. He was in Hippo, northern Africa, and these Germanic barbarians are hearing about the gospel and things, and they're kind of still on the outskirts in the time of Augustine. At the end of his life, that's when his part of, of the Roman Empire was invaded. But they're on the outskirts, and they're hearing about this gospel. And Augustine account, or recounts, write it, he writes it in his letters, how these barbarians would come from time to time, and they would, you know, they would knock, and they would say, Hey, you know, we've heard about this Christ. Can you tell us more? And Augustine, he'll, he has these, these he, he documents. We'll start telling them the gospel. They believe the gospel. They go back. And they all start to believe the gospel. And then they come down and we worship together, we eat together, we hang out together. That's what this is talking about. That's the beauty of this. That's why when Christ comes in, see, this is the insanity to me. And this is the next part. Look what happens, okay? When it says, this is the third part, the kingdom is victorious. This is the next part in, in Zechariah. Not only does he speak peace to the nations, but his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here's the thing. He can, we can go all day long and speak peace to people, right? But unless God is moving behind that, unless God is doing a work of grace, when we go forth and proclaim and speak peace to people, guess what's going to happen? Nothing. But that's not what you see in church history. You see the exact opposite. This, this part of the country right now, 150 years ago, this guy sent me a lot of stuff earlier, overwhelmed by all the information that he was sending me on the fact that this, this whole area 150 years ago, think about, think about this, that's not that long ago. You know what this whole area was looking like 150 years ago? This was Comanche territory. You could not have stepped foot on this ground. I don't care who you are. 
You, I don't care if you're another Indian tribe. You would, have, you would not have made it. 100, 150 years ago. But what happens, and there's good books on this too, but what happens is the gospel has this effect wherever it goes. It does, look what, what, what happens with Patrick. He goes back to these barbarians. Most of them are our ancestors, you know, in Ireland. And what happens? These brute beasts begin to call upon the name of the, the Lord and all of a sudden, you know, now they begin having better work ethic, being more honest. They're not going around chopping people's heads off and cannibalizing and everything else. For our ancestors, what happened? We didn't all of a sudden become better than they did internally, right? The gospel happened. The gospel begins, and this is the part of, the, of Christ's kingdom is victorious, okay? I'm gonna, here's the thing, I got some names for you. And I want you to think, what, what do all these names have in, com- in com- um, common? Okay? The Caesars, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Nebuchadnezzar, the Pharaohs. What do they all have in common? Alexander the Great, Nebuchadnezzar, Napoleon. Every one of these people, their kingdoms were toppled, they failed. They're a blip on the radar. They're a little footnote for some of them. And for others, you might find a biography or two, but no one really cares. You know? I mean, it's, yeah, it's important, but really, we don't, we don't look at Napoleon and say, wow, Napoleon, I want to be like Napoleon. No, he failed. Same thing with the Caesars. They failed. Alexander the Great. Oh, he's this great and mighty king. He rules the, the known world by the time he's like 29. But what, what's his kingdom like 50 years later? It's divided. It's wrecked. There is no more, there is no more empire. You see that? So it's one thing to have a kingdom, but it's a whole nother thing when your kingdom is going to be victorious forever, from sea to sea to the end of the earth eternally. And this is what you see in places like Psalm 2.8. I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You think Alexander the Great had power? He had a little spot in the on the map. All these guys, they had a little spot. You know, these these little Puppet world emperors, you know, they want to be somebody, these, these politicians, they want to rule this and rule that, and you realize, man, nobody's going to care about you 50 years from now. No one's going to care about you. Whatever power that you might maintain, it's not going to last. It doesn't matter. I remember being struck when I was in college, and somebody pointed out, every empire eventually fails. Every time. One of these days, America is not going to be America anymore. <laughs> it's not. And you can look at that, and this isn't like an anti-America thing, of course not, but it's to say, you know, here's the beauty of following the king of kings. Because his kingdom, his dominion, his empire never ends. It continues to increase and expand. It's the opposite of that. You can put all your hopes and all your trust and all your dreams into these these puppets, these, these politicians, and what happens is, is eventually they fall, they crumble. Eventually. But what's going to happen is, as the gospel goes forth, and this is the fourth part right here, okay? The kingdom has come. Now, how do we know that? Well, because Christ himself tells us this. Because hold, hold the thought on this, what I was just saying, okay? We know that Christ's kingdom has come in his advent because he tells us. He says, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Luke 17, he says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If then, right? If I do this, and he does this, 
He drives out demons by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He talks about how he's bound the strong man. He's plundering the strong man's house. We see that. So even as you're reading Revelation, you realize, okay, when's the reign of Christ begin? It's already began. It began when he came to earth and started plundering the strong man's house. He was binding the strong man. The saints bound, according to Christ. But it's definitive in not yet. Okay, and this is the second part. There's a progressive element to it. There is an a incremental element to this. Okay, Christ himself, how do you know this? Man, you're just making stuff up. Well, Christ himself says the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And there's the thing. This is why I thought this is, you know, as I was preparing for all of this, you had the shooting in Tennessee, right? You're looking at this, and you're like, man, okay, look, it's easy. It's easy in our culture to look around and say, man, how can you say that, the king, that Christ is on his throne? How can you say that, God, that Christ is king already when these little Christians were martyred for the sake of some kind of transgender agenda? How can you look at that, right? Here's the, here's the point, though, and this is, this is, here's the thing. When you're looking at things like that, we're so quick to look and say, oh man, because I saw something bad or this evil thing happened, and it's, it's atrocious. Then therefore God is not reigning, that Christ is not on His throne. But here's the thing. If it wasn't for Christ being on His throne, this kind of stuff would happen every single minute. Every single day. It used to happen. In this area, like I just said, if you were to step foot in this area 150 years ago, the same thing is going to happen to every single one of us. But the gospel comes in and does this work so that now we're able to say, wow, that's unjust. Well, where do you get that from? The Bible, right? That's where you get the notion that, hey, maybe you shouldn't go around murdering people. Well, why not? My ancestors did it. Every, every you know, when I say ancestors, I'm not, you know, I don't care who you are. I don't care what color you are. Your ancestors were wicked people. And I'm not saying, this is not like reparations and all that, Logan. <laughs> Logan, give me. He'd be like, hey man. No, it's to say that we're all in the same boat. You see that? So my, and I, I, you know, I tease actually because my ancestors in Ireland, they were taken into slavery by Muslims. So I need to go to the Muslims and start demanding reparations. No, this is human nature apart from the gospel. And so the gospel comes in and begins to do this work of grace, and it's like leaven. Christ says, and this is what he's saying, when the kingdom of God comes, people are expecting a military coup, and in reality, it's incremental. It's imperceptible. It's like leaven. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So here's the thing. We look around. And what do you expect when a culture begins to give up the things of Christ, gives up the things of the gospel? Well, you're going to have an encroachment of wickedness and darkness and evil encroaching into that territory. But here's the thing for us. We can be confident that even if America does crumble, even if America isn't America in, you know, eventually, 100 years, 500 years, 50 years, whatever it is, tomorrow, here's the thing. Christ's kingdom is still going to be advancing in this country, continent, whatever you call it by then. See that? Like in China, and I've told you the story, when you go and you meet the, the brothers, when I was talking to them at seminary in Michigan, and they're telling us, hey, you know, there's not just an underground church in China, there's underground seminaries in China. 
There's an explosion in China. There's a reformation taking place in China. There's revivals taking place right now around the world. You see that? So it's not to say, oh, you know, we need to be pessimistic and just throw, throw everything away because America is crumbling and people are shooting up Christian schools and this and that. It's the opposite. It looks bad. It looked bad at the time of Zechariah. It looked bad in the days of Christ. But what was, what, was the, what was the message? Christ is king, therefore be confident, be hopeful, because God is doing a work of grace in the area through you, through I, through myself, through all of us, all of his people, that's going to be so glorious and so great. It is going to be this seed that although it starts small, it's going to be a shrub that becomes a tree so that birds of the air come and make their nest under the branches. That's the beauty of all of this. So as we come together on Palm Sunday and we think, okay, what's the point? What's he doing here? He's declaring himself to be king. Now how weird would this be if he's going through all of these these imageries and images and um, symbols, he's getting a donkey and he's riding on the donkey and people are laying their coats down. How weird would it be if they're doing all of this stuff? And he know Christ knows what he's doing. Remember, Christ is the one that tells his disciples, go get me a donkey. He knows he's fulfilling Zechariah. He's the king that's to be expected. But how weird would it be if he does all of this and then he's like, all right, but you guys still got to wait like 5,000 years before my kingdom starts. No. It began when he stepped foot. How do you describe that? When he was born. It began when he was born to Mary and eventually steps foot, yeah, on earth. But when he goes to the cross and then he's victorious over, the, over death and the resurrection, you're talking the kingdom has come. But it's in the process of being worked out. Just like sanctification. It happens definitively, but you're working that out. That sanctification is a process. So, what is our role? Number one, submit to Christ as King. Submit to Christ as King. You're either for Him or you're against Him. And even if you don't want to submit to Him as King, I have have bad news for you. He's still your King. Even if you don't want Him to be, He's still the King. So you need to be on the right side. You want to make sure that, that you're on, on, on his side. Okay. Number two, though, we need to have confidence. We need to be optimistic. We don't need, you know, I, I, look, whatever the Lord has called you to do, know that you are part of that leaven that's going forth into the world and in, in, in bringing about this advancement of the kingdom of God, this extension of Christ's reign on earth. How is the knowledge of the Lord to spread from sea to sea without God's people going forth? Let's forget about from sea to sea right now. What about our neighbors? What about the people we work with? How many of those have ever have a true understanding of the knowledge of the Lord? Start there. And then God is going to bring this about. We're all living testimonies to this. You know, we're looking around and we're like, man, things are really looking bad in America. Well, there was no Reformed church in Clovis, New Mexico three years ago, two years ago. That's a a step in the right direction. There's a lot of good stuff. You know, so in other words, you can look around, I guess, but at the same time, don't forget to look around and see all the work that God is doing here in our homes and us individually around the nation right now. There's a lot of incredible things that God is doing because He's on the throne, because He's reigning. So I have confidence in that. And then we'll we'll, uh, we'll save the, the, the next verse. So I want to make sure we're presenting Christ as well as far as what He's done for us. Um, but let's come to the supper for this, okay? So let's pray, and then, and then we'll look at this last verse in Zechariah. 
Oh God, we do thank you that we have a Christ who is victorious, a Christ who is king, a Christ who is not like Caesar. He's not like Alexander the Great. He's not like Napoleon. He's not like the Pharaohs. Lord, we have a Christ whose kingdom knows no end, that it stretches not even just from sea to sea or nation to nation, but that it extends even to the cosmos, to the stars, to the, as, as far as the curse is found. We thank you, O oh God, that true restoration, true recreation is taking place this very moment because of the work of Christ. Lord, strengthen us, encourage us, God. Give us grace. Lord, as we struggle and as we suffer, we know, O oh God, that in this world we do suffer and we do struggle. But we have a reason to struggle and to suffer with hope, with confidence, even when things look bleak. Because Christ is risen indeed and that Christ reigns today, He rules today, not just as our high priest, but as the king of the entire universe. We thank you, O God, that you are beyond all others, Lord, that that, that there truly is nothing like you, that you're holy, that you're set apart, that you're transcendent, and yet that Christ the King came to us. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. All right, so there's one verse left here in Zechariah that I want to look at in verse 11. As for you also, he says, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I've set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Here's the thing. All the stuff about Christ's kingdom, all the glorious things, all the promises, the confidence, the hope that we have in Christ is for not unless you're on His side. The only way you can be on His side is because of what He's done for us on the cross. So Christ is king, but He's also priest. What that means that Christ is priest is this right here, the blood of the covenant. You know, when you see blood in the Scriptures, Old Testament, it always typifies the blood of Christ. So this this idea of blood of the covenant, there's a really glorious passage in Exodus 24. And this is when all the elders are standing before Moses, right in front of Mount Sinai. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He arose early in the morning, gets all these guys in front of him took half of the blood, put it in basins, the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And then look in verse 8. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. The blood of the covenant sprinkled on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then here's Zechariah, way down the road, saying the same thing. Now, because of that, you know what happens next. Adab, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, 70 of the elders of Israel, they go up, they saw the God of Israel, usually that means you're, gonna, you're about to be destroyed. They see the God of Israel, and then they're stunned because they actually eat and drink in the presence of the God of Israel. How are they allowed to do that? Because of the blood. The blood of the covenant was sprinkled upon them. That's what you have in the Lord's Supper. And so that's what you have here. So when you have Christ going to His death, when when you have Christ going to, to the curse, we know that He's doing that for us, to reconcile us to God. And it says as much here in verse 11, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Waterless, you know there's an imagery, there's symbolism in the Scriptures regarding water. Water means life. 
Water means regeneration, salvation, sanctification. Water is good. This is waterless. He's saying, I delivered you from a waterless, what pit, dungeon, slavery. Um, death. This is what Christ has delivered us from. And then there's all the benefits that you have in Christ. And that's why, of course, in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, Christ is the pearl of great price. Christ is the treasure buried in the field that someone went and sold everything they had to go and get, right? That's why we do this. It's not just that Christ is our king, but that he is our priest, and he's laid down his life for us on the cross. So as we, um, as we come to the supper, I want to say this right here from Matthew 26 at the Lord's Supper, because I want to tie all the blood of the covenant together, okay? He says, he broke it as they're eating. He broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. And then he says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So it all ties together. That's what Christ is doing here. So as we come to the supper today, especially, I mean, this is incredible, right? The king of the universe tells us right here, he says, take, eat. He tells us to do this. Drink from it. The king of the universe wants us to do this. He's telling you to do this. And so we do it as a response of faith um, and obedience to him, that this is what Christ has told us to do. Let's do it. And what has he told us to do? Eat. Eat what? Eat him. Drink. Drink Drink his blood. Now we know it's spiritual, but Christ is really present. He's strengthening us through this. He's really present. So it's not just a bare figment of just bread and wine, right? I mean, this is, you're talking about something that is a means of feeding his people and strengthening his people, and confirming their faith, strengthening them in the faith. The God of the universe. All right, so um, we do ask that if you're not in Christ, you're not a Christian, if you don't follow Christ, that you wouldn't partake of the elements. Same thing if you're in unrepentant sin, under church discipline, you haven't been baptized, if you have any questions on any of those things, please come and talk to us. Um, so, without further ado, though, I think that's, that's, that's it. You know, if you are in Christ, Christ tells you to, to come and eat, to come and drink for our sake. So, um, that's what we'll be doing. So, um, after we pray, we'll hand out the elements. Wine is on the outside, right? Is that where, Eric, is the wine on the outside? Okay, grape juice on the very farthest outer ring, okay? All right, let's pray. Oh God, as we come to your table today, we do pray that you would strengthen us, feed us.